Thank you guys very much for being here this morning. It's been uh, an interesting week for us. It's been, uh, I'm, as I'm sure it's been an interesting week for everybody. This is just sometimes you have to improvise in life, which is good. Um, what that meant for me is that like Thursday evening, Friday morning, I was told that I was preaching today on the church in Laodicea, which means that I am the third pastor to prepare a sermon about the church in Laodicea um, in the last week. So, and this is rough, because like Martin and Darian, who are deeply wise people that I love dearly, are watching online, and if I get it wrong, they're going to be mad, right? Like this is, this is just the way that, and like you've got jobs, you do this as well, you're what, you know, if you are a person who lays tile and you watch another tiler do it wrong, then you're going to be like, man, man. So um, that's what we're dealing with today. Thank you. I don't know what you said. No. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That is that. Thank you. I very much appreciate that. And that is the. <laughs> That is the entire call and response portion of the program that we're going to have tonight. Please don't yell unless I ask you to. That's fine. <laughs> Thank you, though, very, very much. I appreciate that. So um, we are talking about the church in Laodicea. And if we go to the church in Laodicea, um, we can just see that, again, this is the last of the seven churches. This is the official end of the, the summer sermon series, end of summer, however you want to take it. We are in Laodicea. And, again, it just follows the road. And we are in this church in Laodicea, which is an interesting place for us to be because Laodicea is just a, a, a fascinating and interesting place. It's a, it's a wealthy city. It's, it's over the top in, it, in, in what it has and what it has to offer. And this letter is over the top and what it calls us to as well. So, so we're just going just gonna to jump in and we're going we're gonna to read the letter and then we're going to come back to it and go through. And we're going to start off, like all of these letters to the churches start off, with an image of Jesus. And this is something that I was sitting, as I was sitting over there, I think that this is really important that, that like, and, and as we were singing those songs this morning, that, that, we start with reminding ourselves who Jesus is. There's a, uh, uh, an epidemic, I think, of, of obviously there's an epidemic, but there's an, also an epidemic of anxiety in our culture right now, in our churches. I think it's in all of us that, 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 that we feel unsure about what the future holds. And I wonder for those of us who are Christians, are we spending enough time reminding ourselves who Jesus is? That as an antidote for my anxiety, when I remind myself, when I'm feeling anxious about what I'm seeing in the news and the scroll and the doom and all of the stuff that's happening in the world, and I sit and I just remind myself that Jesus is, is called Wonderful Counselor God with us, I feel myself calm down. And I think that that would be a worthwhile thing for all of us to do. And, and that's echoed by the fact that when Jesus is sending a letter to all of his churches, no matter where they are in good positions or bad, he always starts off by reminding them, hey, this is who I am. And this is what Jesus says to the angel or the messenger of the church at Laodicea, right? These are the words of the amen. Amen in this sense just means the truth, the, the most true truth. 
These are the words of the most true truth, the faithful and the true witness, the ruler of God's creation. So if you're looking to, for an image of who Jesus is in this, Jesus is the one who is the source of all truth. Jesus makes things true by who he is. He is the faithful and true witness. He is the one who always tells the truth about who you are and why you're here and what's going on. And he is the ruler of God's creation. There is nothing that Jesus is not in charge of. So now that we've heard that, that Jesus is this source of truth, this powerful ruler of all creation, now we can enter into this church that's in the most dangerous place in the world. The church at Laodicea, if we can go to the next one, was at in the most dangerous place in the world. And, and, I, and as we read this, I want you to take some time to guess, see if you can guess why they're in the most dangerous place in the world. And we're going to read through the whole letter and then we'll come back. So we'll read through. After the message of who Jesus is, it says, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither cold, hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Next, please. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Then whom, uh, those who I love and I rebuke, I rebuke and, sorry, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says in the churches. This is the letter that Jesus chose to write to a church in the most dangerous place in the world. And did you see, did you notice why they were in the most dangerous place in the world? Did it stand out to you? Because it wasn't economically the most dangerous place in the world. If we go to the next slide, Laodicea existed at this crossroads of where things would come from the east into what was then known as Europe. It was, it was an incredibly wealthy city. It was so wealthy it had a population of 40,000 people, but it had two theaters. Ephesus only had one. It had, it had five agoras or what we, markets or what we would consider shopping malls. It had beautiful marble uh, roadways. It had everything that you could imagine. There was a large Jewish population in Laodicea. And, and, and at some points uh, prior to this, that community was sending nine kilograms of gold to Jerusalem every single year. It was an incredibly wealthy city. Anything that you wanted to buy, you could buy in Laodicea. There was, it was an amazing city in that sense. So economically, they're so, they're so wealthy that in, that in around where this letter was written, maybe this was re letter was written a little bit before, a little bit afterwards, but certainly prior to 70 AD, in, the, in about 61 AD, they had an earthquake that destroyed the city. And Rome said, hey, do you want us to help you out with some money to rebuild your city? And they said, no thanks. That's how wealthy they were. 
they turned down government money to rebuild their city and said, now we got it. Thank you very much, right? So this is an amazingly wealthy city. They're not in the most dangerous place in the world because of their economics. They're also not in the most dangerous place in the world because of their education system. They were an incredibly well-educated city. Laodicea was actually, interestingly, the the, the, the one, of, one of the most, had one, probably the most advanced medical school in the entire world at that point in time, as far as medicine went. It still involved many leeches and things like that. But it was, there was also good, like, good medicine happening there. But, and especially in the, in the realm of ophthalmology, of, of, of eye doctors. And, and, and in this area, there was, there was a lot of uh, minerals and things that they would use to make an eye salve. And if you had eye problems and were wealthy, you would travel from all around the world to go to Laodicea and have the incredibly well-trained doctors there look at your eyes and heal you. That was how it existed. It's an amazing, amazing place. It was rich, it was educated, and it was also shockingly fashionable. It was also... Uh, 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 an extremely fashionable place. They had bred these sheep that all had black fur. So without dyeing the wool, you got these really dark colors. So they would wear elaborate robes that were, that were, that, that were these shades of black and had different textures. It was an incredibly fashionable place to be. This is like, if you could imagine Dubai, right? I've never been to Dubai. Some of you have. But like Dubai, every time I see a picture, it's just like they've built another ridiculous thing because they just have, it's just an incredibly wealthy city. And that is the playground for the wealthy of the world. And that was what Laodicea is. And when God writes to the Laodicean church, despite their wealth, despite their fashion, despite their education, they're still in the most dangerous place in the world. They did have some problems. They had a water issue. And if you can see these cities uh, at the next point, you can see where it says here, you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. That comes, if we can go back to the last slide, please. That, that comes from, from these two cities that it was close to. Hierapolis was a source of a hot spring. It, it, it was, you would go there and the water was bubbling over the, the, these uh, thermal currents that were causing heat. So people would go there and have like basically hot baths. It would be healing in that sense. It would be a treatment to go to the hot springs. And, and Colossae had a, had a cold spring. It was, had this glacier-fed stream that was bubbling. Uh, Martin's version of this sermon had pictures of him visiting those places. I don't have pictures of visiting those places, but trust me, they're real. And... And they still exist today, hot springs and this glacier-fed stream that is incredibly, incredibly cold and that was refreshing to drink and people could use it as well. But by the time you got to Laodicea, the water is just stagnant. In both of these places, you have these bubbling water, hot, boiling, bubbling springs, cold, frigid, bubbling springs. But by the time you get to Laodicea, it's just like stagnant. So they had a water issue, but even their water issue was not the thing that made them live in the most dangerous place in the world. If you can go forward, and if we, I believe that this is why they were in the most dangerous place in the world. Because Jesus says to them, you say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. 
but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I believe that the most dangerous place for any church to be is where there is a gap between how you see yourself and how God sees you. The most dangerous place for any church to be is where there is a gap between who we think that we are and who God knows that we are. And Laodicea lived in this place. They believed themselves to have acquired wealth and not need anything. They were incredibly successful. The population there was giving nine kilograms of gold to Jerusalem every year. They were wealthy, they were educated, they were fashionable, they were successful. They were even beginning to take over some of the opposing synagogues and religions. We, the archaeological evidence in Laodicea is that even by this time they had started to see, see crosses, early crosses superimposed in synagogues where, where the population had so turned to Jesus that, that, that this was a church of Jesus. They were starting to see that in temples as well. They were incredibly successful, and yet they, they did not realize that they were wretched, poor, blind, and naked. They're not alone in this. This has always been a risk for the people of God that we begin to see ourselves differently than God sees us. We can go all the way back to Isaiah. Isaiah has this fascinating line in 29 where the Lord says, these people, talking about the people of Israel, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that they have been taught. These people thought that we're obeying Torah, we're showing up and we're doing all of the things, we're singing the right songs, we're standing in the right places, we're making the right offerings, we're doing all of the stuff we're supposed to do, and God is saying, your heart is far from me. You don't have a connection with me, you have a connection with a tradition. It's not what I've called you to. And there's this dangerous gap that existed for the people of Israel where they thought that, yes, we are the upholders of a tradition. And God is saying, yeah, but you don't know me. Your hearts are far from me. You're making the motions. You're saying the words, but it doesn't matter. This even continues in Jesus' ministry. Jesus shares this parable, again, about a religious person. To some who were confident of their own righteousness, and looked down on everyone else. Jesus told this parable. He said, two, peop two men went to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. You've got to understand how in, the, how in that world, how different those places were. That was like two people went to pray. One was a church pastor and the other ran a strip club. That's how far apart these things were in their minds. And to someone who was confident in their own righteousness, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, 
went home justified before God, for all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. It is extremely dangerous to be in a place where you see yourself differently than God sees you. This Pharisee thought that I have performed all of the necessary rituals. I am the, my identity is sealed in, in, my, in my heritage, in my ethnicity, in my role in society, and I thank you, God, that I am not like these, the rest of the people. I'm glad that you like my people best. And God said, I don't like you best because your heart is proud. I don't like you best because you're, you, you, you're missing the entire point of this. I'm here with this man who is humble and recognizes that he needs mercy and grace. He gives grace to the humble and sends the proudful away empty. And it is very dangerous for the Laodicean church that they find themselves in a simple, similar position where they say, I'm rich. We don't need anything. And God is saying, you are so far from rich in any way that matters. You're in the most dangerous place in the world. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are poor, wretched, pitiful, blind, and naked. It doesn't matter how much money you've got accumulated, Laodicean church. It doesn't matter that you participate in a city that can make its own coins. It doesn't matter how much charity you do. It doesn't matter how fancy your programs are, Laodicean church. Your money doesn't matter. You're poor. Laodicean church says, we have eye salve, we have the ophthalmologists, we have the medical school. Of course we don't need healing. Of course we don't need to be able to see more clearly. And God says, you are so far from seeing anything that is real and true. You're blind and you need to have your eyes healed. You've been distracted by something and you're missing everything that you ought to be seeing at this moment. You're blind. You know, it doesn't matter how much you know about how your eyes work. You're still blind. And they say, but we're fashionable. We've got all of these wonderful black clothes. We've got, we've got ourselves covered up nicely. We're just like Adam and Eve when they wrap together those leaves. And God says, no, 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 no. It doesn't matter how new, how fancy, how expensive your clothes are. It doesn't matter the brand names, it doesn't matter if you're on the cover of, of fashion magazines, you're naked. The emperor has no clothes. It doesn't matter how you see yourself. God sees the truth. Jesus is the truth. And he says to this church, you think you've got it all together. You think your programs, you think your education, you think your fashion is making you wonderful and good. And I'm telling you, I'm going to have to spit it up. I'm going to have to give it back to you because it's stagnant and it's gross and I can't do anything with it. I can't, I can't bathe in its heat, nor am I refreshed by its coolness. I... And it's this dangerous place to be. 
especially for people like us, people who gather in a place like this every Sunday, people who believe that we're called by Jesus, people who call ourselves Christians and religious people, we can easily fall into this pattern of being in the most dangerous place in the world where we've become so good at singing the songs, where we've become so good at performing the programs, where we've become so good at putting on the show and being mad at the people we're supposed to be mad at and praising the people that we're supposed to praise that we get lost and we start to see ourselves differently than Jesus is seeing us. And in that place is the most dangerous place in the world to be. So what is Jesus say? He just doesn't leave them there and say like, well, you guys are gross. See you later. You know, he, do, he doesn't stop there. He moves on. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. It's fascinating. He looks at these things that they're so proud of and he says, I counsel you to do what is right and what is real, okay? You need to come to Jesus for your righteousness and your wealth. It doesn't matter how much coin you accumulate. It doesn't matter how much marble or, or precious stones that you have accumulated in your bank account. It doesn't matter how much Bitcoin is in your portfolio. You need to get your righteousness from God and that's the only place that it's going to matter. Get wealthy in God's eyes. Get white clothes to wear from him. It doesn't matter that you've got this fashion industry. It doesn't matter that there's a, a hat that everyone wears. It's called the evangelical hat now. It doesn't matter how many shoe deals you've got. God is saying, get clothing from me. Get healing from me, Jesus says. That's what is really going to cover you. And, and don't think that, that you're for them, it was, their, it was their medical industry. For us, it's our Christian self-help industry. Don't think that that is going to save you. The fact that there's a, a Christian book about washing your face at the top of the bestseller list doesn't mean that there's any truth to it. Get truth from God's word. Get true healing from God's, God's hand. Get healing from God's people. Don't think that just because you involve yourself in Christian things that you're in any way connected to God. It's a consumer culture that you've been sold. It's a product. Go to Jesus where it's real. It's dangerous for us to think about these things and to pursue healing in another conference, to pursue healing in another Christian self-help book, to pursue healing in another Christian activity when our healing is only going to be found in presenting ourselves before Jesus and saying, God, heal me, make me new, create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit in me. That is where our healing is going to be found. I counsel you to be, sorry, go back. I'm going to read it again. Because these are the words you need to hold. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. White clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. This is what I love. If you're feeling right now that like, ugh, <laughs> This was heavy. Um, that's okay. God rebukes those that he loves. God disciplines those he loves. When God is most frustrated with you, that is when God, biblically, that is when God says, okay, have it your way. 
if you are facing opposition in your life, it could be it, it, it could be opposition from the enemy, that is possible, but most often when you face opposition in your life in any way, it's because God is trying to mature you. That is, the, God would rather you be mature than you be happy. Do we understand that? You can be happy and far from God, and that is not good enough. God wants you to be mature more than anything else. So really specific example, I had to teach all of my children how to tie their, uh, tie their shoes, right? Between me and my, my wife, we taught all of our children how to tie their shoes. There were multiple uh, YouTube videos that also helped. Uh, Google um, uh, David Reese shoe tying, it's an excellent, you'll enjoy it. But I had to teach all of them to tie their shoes and there was always a moment when they couldn't tie their shoes, when I had to step back and say, I'm sorry, I'm not going to help you. And it happened with all three of my children that they all got furious at that moment. Then they stomped around with their like untied shoe and they like got mad at me. They're like, how are you not helping me right now? Why aren't you helping me tie my shoe? Because I don't want to tie your shoe for the rest of your life. I don't want to be at your graduation ceremony from university and be like, oh, I got to tie your shoe for you. And the only way for me to get there is for you to be uncomfortable now. And you don't get that because you're a child. But I would rather you be an adult who can tie your shoe than a happy child now. Do we understand that God loves us that much as well? that we are equally as immature no matter how old we are, and that maybe when we're facing opposition, God is saying, no, you got to figure this out. I've given you all the tools. I've taught you. Now you need to tie your shoe. And, I, and, and, and the only way for you to be mature is for me to be hands-off with you. Do we get how God works in that sometimes? I'm not saying it's not hard. I'm not saying it's not difficult. I'm not telling you not to throw the tantrum. God invites us to throw the tantrum. But can we see to the other side that God has invited us to this, that he wants maturity for us more than happiness. So he rebukes and he disciplines us. And in this, he says, be earnest and repent. Now, I love this word. I'm going to give you a little bit. This is when I get linguistic nerd. So this word that's translated in, as earnest in, in Greek, sorry, I'm using Greek, guys, for you, those of you who like Aramaic better, um, but it's roughly the same word. Um, real nerdy, don't worry about it. That was specifically for Martin and Darian. Um, that was specifically for them, and because they both were like, Aramaic, and I'm like, I'm doing the Greek, but that's fine. Um, we can argue about it when they get back. Um, but... This word for earnest, is, is the word in Greek is, 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 is zelu. It's the same word from which we get zeal. And it means like a, 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 an, over, uh, an, an abundance of energy. But what's fascinating about it is zelu, they believe, is an onomatopoeic word. So onomatopoeia is a, is a word that, that, that sounds like the thing that you're trying to describe. So our word bubble is an onomatopoeic word because when you are boiling water, it sounds like... And for them, Zelu worked the exact same way. It also meant bubble, like, like, right? 
which is fascinating because what does hot, boiling water do? Bubbles. What does a frigid, glacier-fed spring do? It bubbles. So hot and cold water, both zalu or bubble, it, it gives off this energy. Stagnant, lukewarm water just sits there like a lump. And God's saying, bubble over, bubble over with excitement and repent. Repent is the first word of the gospel. The first word that Jesus says when he starts his ministry is repent and believe the good news. Repent, repentance at its heart is agreeing with God about who he says you are. So when God says you're wretched, poor, blind, and naked, no matter what the world is telling you you are, no matter what evidence you have, to the contrary, no matter what your bank account says, or your closet says, your, or your academic work says, you're wretched, poor, blind, and naked. Repentance is saying, yeah, you're right, God. You're right about this. I thought I was right, but you're right. We do this all the time, and this agreement thing is incredibly important when it comes to repentance, because this is what makes it different than an apology, Okay? An apology is where we do something wrong and we say, I'm sorry for that. And sometimes you'll even say something like, I'm sorry what I did made you feel like that, which isn't really an apology at all. It doesn't say anything about. So if I'm in an argument where my, with my wife and she says, you behaved selfishly there, and I say, I'm sorry you felt that I behaved selfishly, that's an apology, Right? Repentance is me agreeing and saying, like, you're right, I was selfish. I shouldn't have been. I'm sorry. I'll try and do better. But I was selfish. It's agreement with what the truth of the situation is. And we need to get this straight. When we repent, we agree with God about who he says we are. And we lay down our version of our own stories that makes us look and feel good. All of the excuses that we make that like, well, I sinned because I didn't have any other options. Or I treated this person badly because I didn't know any better at the time. And, and, and if I had have had all of these advantages go my way, then I would have done right. God says, no, 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 I don't care about your excuses anymore. Do you agree that you behaved selfishly? Do you, believe, do you agree that you are wretched, poor, blind, and naked? So bubble over with that excitement and agree with God about who you are. And this is what's beautiful. He says, I stand at the door and knock. We've used this as a salvation passage that God is like trying to knock to get into our hearts. This is actually, and, and, and I don't want to take that away from you if that's a beautiful thing that you believe, that in your heart. That is a beautiful image. But it's much more concrete than that. God is standing at the door and knocking and saying, I want to get into your life. And, he, and if you make room for Jesus, he is going to step into your life and meet you there. That's what he wants. So I'm, talking, I'm not talking about woo-woo emotionally. I'm talking about really practically. Those of you who keep a day timer, how many of you have sections marked out there for Jesus to meet with you? How many of you that, that have places that you live where you can do this have a place in your home that's marked out that, like, I meet Jesus here? And this is really important because I got I to gotta be honest with you. One of the most incredible things that happened in my spiritual life a few years ago 
was, um, actually it wasn't even a few years ago, it was this year. Um, years don't matter anymore, everything blends together. It still feels like it's 2017. Um, um, but when, but one of the things that, uh, but one of the most important things that happened in my spiritual life was I was just, I realized that all my time with Jesus was intense. Like, I kept going to Jesus expecting, like, I want to have an encounter with you. I want to discover something deep inside myself. I want to, and, and as I started reading more about Jesus being like a father, I was just like, if I was a father and every encounter with my kids had to have, like, an emotional intensity, that would be exhausting, right? Like, if every time my kids hung out with me, they were like, well, I want to have a conversation about something real, I'd be like, whoa, can we just watch Great British Bake Off together? Because I just like hanging out with you sometimes, right? And so what I started doing was I was like, okay, what does this look like for me to do this in real life? And this is, I'm not, this is me. This is me being silly. I started inviting Jesus out for coffee with me, okay? And you can laugh. This is fine. But, but the first time I was doing it, I was just like, I had some running around to do, and I was like, I'm going to, I'm like driving in my truck, and I'm like, I'm going to deliberately invite Jesus to come on this running errands with me and just hang out. So I was going through a drive-thru, and I was buying a coffee, and Jesus, <laughs> and I don't hear audible voices, but I felt like Jesus was saying to me, like, I don't get a drink, and... Uh, So I bought, I bought Jesus a hot chocolate. <laughs> and then I ran around and did my errands. But can I, and it's okay to laugh at that. But can I tell you how much growth I've had in my Christian life in that time? Because I just was like, because I just started praying and talking to God as if just like, you're here, you're part of my life, I'm making room for you, like let's just hang out and and I gotta be honest, the, as clearly as I've ever heard anything in my life, I felt like Jesus was saying to me, like, you need to relax a bit. You are a bit much often. So can you just like cool out a little bit? And and it was incredibly freeing for me. And and but that happened because he was knocking and I let him in. And I'm not suggesting that you do the exact same thing. Figure out your own buying Jesus a hot chocolate. Incidentally, incidentally, in case you're wondering, uh, I then had to pick up my son from school. So when I got to pick up my son from school, he was like, what's this? And I was like, it's Jesus' hot chocolate. <laughs> and, and he picked it up and said, there's still hot chocolate in it. Can I drink it? And I said, and I said I'm pretty sure Jesus is cool with that. So, so. Every once in a while, uh, if he, my son knows that I, I'm picking up a lot later, he'll be like, are you going to get hot chocolate for Jesus? <laughs> <sighs> Make room in your life for Jesus because he wants to meet you there. Can we go to the next? I need to speed up. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. This is fascinating. There's a story in the Gospels where James and John go up to Jesus and they're like, Hey, Jesus, can we sit on your right and on your left when you come into your kingdom? There's another version of the story where they send their mom to do it, but it's James and John's fault. Um, but, and Jesus says, like, 
uh, goes through a bit, but then ultimately he says, like, it's not up for me, to me to give you those seats. Like, those are for the ones who they've been reserved for. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne, whoever is used to hear, let them hear. Those spaces are reserved for the church at Laodicea. Those spaces are reserved for us, for those people who hear God clearly and say, I'm going to trust that you're true, not what I think is true. I'm going to trust that, 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 that you, I am who you say I am, not who I think I am. Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So let's go to the next, please. So this is what, really practically, this is, these are the questions that I want us to ask this week. Because it's really possible for us to be in the most dangerous place in the world as well. Both as individuals and as a church. That there could be a gap between who we believe that we are and who God thinks that we are. So the questions that we're going to ask ourselves and that I think would like us to ask ourselves together and for you to ask yourselves individually are these. Are you bubbling over with desire for God? Do you have that Zelu in you? Do you blah, blah, blah? Is there something exciting happening in you? Because there should be. I've encountered way too many Christians in the city of Edmonton who are like, how's your church? And they're like, it's fine. We don't want fine. I want the Spirit of God and nothing less. So are we bubbling over? Because that's what God wants for us. Are we agreeing in repentance with God about our actions and desires? We all know what it is like to fight with God about this. We all know what it is like to know that we've sinned and stand there and being like, but God, I have all of this list of excuses for why I didn't do what I was supposed to do or why I did what I wasn't supposed to do or why I didn't stand up when I was supposed to stand up. Are we agreeing with God and just saying like, you're right, you're right. No matter what my excuses are, you're right. Are we agreeing in repentance with God about our actions and desires? And are we regularly making room in our homes and our life to meet with Jesus? And this isn't about just like, and if you've got a quiet time where you do your devotions, that's great. That's wonderful. Keep that. But I bet that there's a lot of people in this congregation right now that if Jesus were to call you and say, when are we scheduled to meet, there's no time written down there. Are you doing that? Is there a place in your timetable? Is there a place in your home to meet Jesus because he wants to meet you there. And when he meets you there, you will find that he tells you the truth about who you are in a way that makes you bubble over. I love the story of the woman at the well because there's this amazing moment that happens where she has this encounter with Jesus and Jesus is like, she's like, should I go get my husband? And he's like, go get your husband. She's like, I don't have a husband. He's like, yeah, you've got five husbands and the man that you're with right now is gives her this shameful bit of what what's her heard is a harsh and shameful bit of information but when she goes into the town she says come and see the man who told me everything I ever did I couldn't imagine saying like some guy coming to me and be like hey I know your entire browser history and then I'm gonna go and be like hey come meet the guy who knows every website that I've ever visited in my life. 
But that's the knowing that Jesus is promising, that he can know you that deeply and know it without shame. So let's step into that.